The following podcast contains explicit language. This is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of November 4th, 2019. I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. On this week's show, we're ditching the usual format. Sorry, Nats fans. Tell your team not to win the World Series on a Wednesday next time. Instead, we'll have an extended conversation with some former writers and editors at Deadspin, a sports website that effectively died last week when its entire editorial staff was either fired or mostly resigned after a protracted conflict with its new owners about, among other things, sticking to sports. Josh Levine is Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. He joins me from New Orleans. Hey, Josh. Looking forward to providing a Southern perspective on the proceedings today, Stefan. What are you doing down there? I had a book thing, also just doing some scouting of Alabama for Saturday's LSU-Alabama game. I had an idea about that, by the way. Sort of a light bulb moment because you were in Baton Rouge scouting. What's that? I was looking at the polls. I didn't realize LSU was number one in the AP poll. Congratulations, Josh. You should have realized that, but thank you. We should just stop the regular season right now. Sorry, LSU-Alabama. Take the top 16 teams. Start the playoffs. It's a little tricky on the scheduling. But you've got the bracket, which would go on for four weeks. So the the final two teams would play 12 games. Everyone who's eliminated resumes regular scheduling after they're out. So next Saturday would be LSU-Wisconsin, Alabama-Notre Dame, Ohio State-Michigan. I'm excited. What's the point of this? This is like the best weekend of the college football season. And so your idea is to just destroy it willy-nilly. Right. Clearly the idea of a non-college football fan. Stefan. Why don't you uh, stick to what you're best at, which is telling our listeners about our live show. I could do that. It's going to be on Tuesday, December 3rd at the Hamilton Live in D.C. You can go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. There will be guests. It will not be just Josh and me. That's a relief. Slate.com slash live tickets info. Get them now. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Deadspin was started 14 years ago by Will Leach, who cranked out 300-word blog posts in the first-person plural, and it ended for all intents and purposes on Friday with a video of NCAA stooges lying about paying college athletes. At its best, Deadspin was insightful and provocative and creative and whimsical and funny and fun. It became a home not just for deadline game analysis, but ambitious long-form narratives and investigations, moving personal essays, and a generally rational worldview that cut through the bullshit, not just of big sports, but of life. In his first post, Leach wrote, there's a whole side of sports that because of either corporate obligations or just plain laziness, never makes it into the public consciousness. He was right about that. As much as any publication, Deadspin defined what sports journalism for smart people in the digital age should look like. For many readers, including me, it replaced legacy sports media as the first place to go for what happened, what mattered, what to think about, and what to talk about. 
Three former dead spinners are packed into a studio at Slate headquarters in Brooklyn. They are Megan Greenwell, who edited the site for 18 months before resigning this summer. She is now the editor of Wired.com. Hey, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. Barry Pacheski joined Deadspin in 2009 and was the longest serving staffer when he was fired last Wednesday. Hey, Barry. Hey, how's it going? And Tom Lay, who wrote and edited for the site for seven years and was among the 20 or so staffers who resigned, is also with us. Hey, Tom. Hello, how are you? Good. Thank you all for doing this. I know it was an awful week, and I hope this provides some catharsis, and if not catharsis, at least some analysis. So, Megan, why don't we start with you? Why don't you explain how the conflict between staff and management developed after Deadspin was acquired in April, along with other sites that were once part of the bankrupted Gawker Media Empire, acquired by a private equity firm called Great Hill Partners? Sure. So after we were bought in April, the first thing that happened was my two bosses, Alex Dickinson and Susie Banacarum, were forced out. They were fired in addition to Tim Marchman, who was running the investigative desk and was my predecessor at Deadspin. And then the new editorial director, Paul Maidment, just started making very clear that he had no interest in what the site was, in protecting our editorial integrity. And so I spent about four months fighting with him on everything from the stick to sports mandate that he was already trying to enact to the idea that Deadspin shouldn't do media reporting, even though we had a full-time media reporter on our staff, to, you know, questioning the data that the analytics team compiled about what people were reading. It was just really, really awful. And after things came to a head, after Laura Wagner, our media reporter, reported a piece that Tom and I edited about the hiring practices of these managers that had come in and about the ways in which they were clearly trying to ruin the company. Spanfeller, the CEO, sent an all-staff email questioning uh, my credibility, the credibility of Laura Wagner. I tried to use that to enact some protections from the editorial director, Paul Maidment. I just couldn't do it. I made the calculation that I couldn't stay for my own integrity, but also because I was putting the site at risk. My thought was maybe they would have a chance of survival if they got rid of me, and then everything else went down this past week. So, Barry, the thing that caused everything to go downhill was this stick-to-sports memo that was sent a week ago. Can you describe the content of the memo and then what happened after you guys got it? Sure. Paul Maidment, after multiple conversations where he intimated that we should stick to sports but would never outright say it because I think he knew there would be a fight, finally sent out a big memo saying what had been said publicly all along. They had no interest in Deadspin doing the things that had made it Deadspin for the last 14 years. There are 18 billion sites you can go to to find out who won. You can go to ESPN. You can go to new uh, zombie Deadspin to find out the results (laughs) of Pat's Ravens last night um, in a blog I do think is written by Paul Maidment. It was not the content of the memo itself that so rankled. It was what it represented. Like it showed very clearly that they did not have any respect and did not hold any value for what Deadspin was and what niche it had carved out. And it showed they were willing to fight about it. It was a test to see if we would fight it or if we would roll over. And I do think in the end, it's mostly about power. They wanted a staff to just roll over for them and do bland work that advertisers wouldn't complain about and just shut up and blog. You know, I've been a deadspin for my entire adult professional life, and that was not the site I'd worked at, and that was not a site I wanted to work at. 
I think some people might conclude that the prudent course would have been to try to ride this out. I know it was six long months, and the way you described it, Megan, was pretty awful. And these guys don't really, obviously, seem to have much sense of what the site was, what it represented, um, why it existed, what its purpose was. And they had a very narrow uh, vision for what this could be and should be that was formed I'm guessing not from reading Deadspin very much, but from some other um, metric that was based on the way that digital media properties could be forced to turn a profit. What did you do? And I guess this is all of you. Like, What efforts did you make to try to sort of persuade them otherwise? I mean, look, the numbers kind of spoke for themselves, didn't they? You were, you know, with 20 million unique visitors a month. I'm sure there are other more pertinent metrics um, that demonstrate why the site was successful, both in terms of drawing readers and generating revenue. I mean, I was in dozens of meetings with Paul Maidment and with Jim Spanfeller over the months between the time they took over and the time I left. I could just never get them to care. I would sit in rooms with them and present them vision memos I had written and spreadsheets showing the data and you know, testaments from people who worked there and people who read the site and other media people and all of that. It was the most frustrating experience in my professional life because it was truly like talking to a brick wall. They just clearly had made up their minds and nothing I could say would make them care. And that was really what kind of killed me. This is Tom. It was definitely one of the more like crazy making experiences of my life. Right after Megan resigned, you know, we we thought that that would be sort of a signal to them that they needed to get their shit together and start listening to us. And the entire staff of Deadspin had a very long meeting with Paul Maidment in which, again, we all in unison explained all the things that Megan had been explaining to them individually. It just didn't go anywhere. I remember at the time, I think I described it to the rest of the staff as like, we were trying to explain how a microwave worked to a baby. Like, no matter what we said, he just sat there. You know, he seemed agreeable. He would nod. He would say, yes, I get that. That all makes sense. I understand that. And it was just, there was no movement. Megan resigned in August. That was the last big convo we had about it. You know, I don't think any of us thought that we made any progress in that meeting. But I think maybe we thought like, okay, maybe they'll just sort of leave us alone They'll, you know, sort of look the other way while we continue to do what we want. Uh, but then that memo came uh, to start last week, and that's, you know, when we knew it was it was basically over. So a question that you guys have all been asked, I think, because it seems like the question to ask, is why would Great Hill Partners, the private equity firm, acquire a set of sites that they clearly didn't understand, didn't respect, didn't like, didn't want to do what they did. Did you guys come to any conclusions around that? Was it just purely around this set of sites has X traffic and we feel like we can turn it into 2X and turn around and sell it again? Is it just as simple as that? This is the big question, isn't it? Why buy Deadspin if you don't want Deadspin to be Deadspin? Uh, we certainly tossed around all kinds of theories about this and nothing quite went all the way toward explaining how they were doing it. Not even the theory that this was a Peter Thiel plant to finally <laughs> bring down the former Gawker networks. Peter Thiel, of course, backed the lawsuit that ultimately led to a $140 million judgment against Gawker. 
Indeed. Um, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> so, like, perhaps this is the private equity model. You buy a brand that has some value, whether or not you understand why it has value. You strip it for parts. You turn around and sell it to someone dumber before they realize that all the value is lost. Like, that is the very definition of the private equity model. I would not be shocked if that was what was going on here, if through a very slapdash, incompetent way. They were clearly focused on scale above all else. In my very early conversations, um, I said at one point, you know, the goal of Deadspin is not to be bigger than ESPN. And they were horrified by that. In some ways, I don't think I ever redeemed myself in their eyes from that comment. Um, They wanted to put AP recaps of every sporting event on the site because they wanted it to be a one-stop destination. And so when I said... The point of Deadspin is not to be all things to all people. It's supposed to have a very strong point of view, and that's why it succeeds. I mean, it was just like they could not understand any mode but let's be the biggest thing in the entire industry. So I'm going to say something that seems pretty straightforward, but I think (laughs) is uh, true. And this is the problem with private equity firms buying and destroying all of these media properties. And that is that in order to run a journalistic outfit, you need to care about journalism because journalists are annoying as hell. And you guys were, um, as a group, probably the most annoying group of journalists to an (laughs) owner that you could possibly construct. You're like always trying to find shit out and you're trying to find it out about your bosses. That is like deeply (laughs) annoying and you're like pesky and you're bothering them. And if you don't fundamentally believe in or understand the principle that, you know, journalists are there to find out stuff that people don't want them to know, then you're not going to abide that. And these guys clearly didn't. No, I mean, well, look where Jim Spanfeller came from. He he started the Daily Meal, which is just a click farm. He made his money turning Forbes into, you know, the content farm that Forbes.com has become today. This isn't a man who has ever done anything to show us that he values journalism. You know, he made a mistake when he bought a bunch of journalists. And that's been the case at multiple media properties over the last five years. Um, And not just digital ones, obviously. Thousands of jobs have been hemorrhaged from daily newspapers in cities across America by their sort of aggregate ownership by private equity firms. Um, And they're scaling down and they're homogenizing news coverage and layout and distribution. The Salt Lake Tribune, it was just reported this morning, has succeeded in an application to become a nonprofit to avoid some of these fates. One of the big questions I have here is like, how do you create a successful model where someone's got to own this stuff, but journalists need to run them and do what they do well the way Deadspin did things well? I mean, there is going to be a tension here as long as this model persists. I mean, have you, particularly in the last week, since you guys have had a lot of time to sit around and think about what's going down, I mean, have you sort of, try to understand what could work better. How could Deadspin survive? Does it have to be sort of a benevolent billionaire owner who gets it? Or is there another way of approaching it? I mean, yeah, I've thought about this question obsessively. I wish I had the answer. We would not be in this position if <laughs> if we did. Uh, and if any benevolent billionaires are out there, uh, get in touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think it's going to have to be owners with some sense of mission. And maybe that means collective ownership, or maybe that means nonprofits, 
or maybe that means, you know, some sort of like donation model, subscription model. The benevolent billionaire model is complicated, too. Um, but at least, you know, you look at le- what Lorraine Powell Jobs is doing with The Atlantic and with California Sunday now, and she seems to truly be in it because she cares about the journalistic enterprises. But, you know, clearly there are problems there, too. And I just truly have not figured out an answer that saves the jobs of wildly talented people and doesn't put people at risk for this again. And I wonder if this isn't worse in the sports field because, you know, we've all experienced this as sports writers. People think they know sports. And that obviously goes up the ladder to rich people who want to buy things that are about sports. And the most recent example, in addition to Deadspin, is Sports Illustrated, which was, you know, has been taken over by a bunch of private equity folks. Louisa Thomas has a great piece up on The New Yorker about what happened to Deadspin and Sports Illustrated and others. And she pulled out a quote from the chief operating officer of the company that has acquired Sports Illustrated who's quoted as saying, nobody is actually a fan of ESPN or Sports Illustrated. They're a fan of the New York Giants or the Iowa Hawkeyes or what have you. They're a fan of the team. I mean, there's always a gross misreading of what sports journalism is supposed to be, particularly today. That's an insane quote. Of course they were fans of Sports Illustrated. They were fans of Deadspin. If you're a fan of the Atlanta Hawks, you're probably not reading Deadspin (laughs) for coverage of the Atlanta Hawks, nor would I advise you to. But if the last week has shown us anything, it was that there was a huge audience of Deadspin fans. I got hundreds upon hundreds of emails, just people thanking us for the work we did, sharing how they found friends and found communities and found spouses through the Deadspin comments. People talking about how they got through tragedies in their lives just by distracting themselves with our stupid blogs every morning. That's wonderful. Of course there are fans of Deadspin. I hate to use the word brand, but it was a strong brand. A stronger brand than the Atlanta Hawks. (laughs) I am just concerned about all the people who are not going to be able to find love now that the Deadspin comments have been turned off. (laughs) Although I'd be interested to know about the marriages that would start from the comments under, like, the Paul Maidment written. Oh, God. That would be uh, interesting to see. Well, they, they still haven't turned the comments on yet, so... Love is being denied. (laughs) Love is being denied. Uh, Barry, you were there longer than Tom or Megan. I'm curious for your thoughts on how Deadspin evolved while you were there. I personally think that it was Craggs, Tommy Craggs, who turned Deadspin into what it became, the, the publication that was kind of a social conscience, among other things, that showed people that sticking to sports was completely... Uh, amoral long before I think a lot of other people recognize that. But I'm curious for your take on what Deadspin is and, and what it was. Yeah, absolutely. I started reading and commenting on Deadspin in, if not 2005, then definitely 2006. And then I finally came onto the site when AJ Delario was the EIC and Tommy Craggs was his number two. And it seems pretty clear that that era was the birth of what we today consider Deadspin. Um, Will Leach Deadspin was a simpler thing. It was uh, clever. It was certainly something unique on the very small sports blog landscape at the time, but it wasn't ambitious. And if it had a voice, it didn't necessarily take sides in things. It didn't get political. It was unambitious, um, for lack of a better term. But uh, Tommy Craggs brought a pretty clear pro-labor, pro-athlete 
point of view to things that has continued to the site today. And even today, that's the thing that still gets certain people upset about the site. Uh, you look at how sports is coverage out there and everyone thinks they're a GM or a fantasy team owner. They don't actually care about players. They care about players performing and not making too much money. They care about players not protesting because after all, aren't they being paid millions of dollars to play a kid's game? Uh, this stuff has always been the same, but the last decade or so of Deadspin has been the first one to speak out about this. And I think over the last few years, you've seen the other sports outlets out there kind of meet us in the middle and start to lean towards what Deadspin was saying a decade ago. And if Deadspin has a legacy, it's that it's no longer the only site taking this very firm point of view. Can I just say, too, that this is not to take anything away from Craig's, and Barry will kill me for saying this, but Barry and also Lay had as much to do with that evolution as anybody else. Like, these are people who were consistent at a digital media shop, which is not a thing that exists, for seven, eight, nine years. Like, they were the ones pushing it in these new directions, and they were the reason, like, I wanted to come to work there for sure because I had been reading them for six or seven or eight years and seeing how the things changed over time. Barry gets credit a lot of times for being the voice of the site, and what he doesn't often get credit for is being, like, the vision maker of the site because he was never the editor-in-chief because he never wanted to be the editor-in-chief. Barry and Tom, I sort of want to, to pursue that thread a little bit more because what has distinguished Deadspin in the last few years has been its evolution into a genuine journalistic product. Real reporting, real writing, bigger names, a more welcoming place for sort of new writers, but also people like Charlie Pierce and Ray Ratto, um, familiar bylines for decades. How did that vision evolve? Like, hey, we can keep doing what we've done and be a sort of the irreverent voice of sports and the conscience of sports. But at the same time, let's be a place where we can produce real journalism. I mean, that goes back to A.J. Delario, I think. You know, we're talking about how Craig's sort of shaped the uh, maybe the voice and point of view of the site. But the person who turned it into a, you know, real brawny journalistic institute was A.J. Like, A.J. was a reporter, a journalist. Like, he, he loved to be, like in the shit and doing the work. And, you know, he's the one who brought Craig's on. He's the one who brought Tom Skoka. He's the one who carved out a place in Deadspin to have investigations and features and things like that. You know, he cut all those people loose. He let them have the site and, and do the things that they wanted to do with it. And I think the ways that we've sort of improved upon that since it, it was laid out pretty easily for us. You know, AJ gave us the blueprint. Craig's gave us another part of the blueprint. And then Barry was there the whole time sort of as the backbone, holding that all together. And by the time I came in, you know, Deadspin was already Deadspin. And I just needed to fit into that and try to keep improving on what was already there. You're talking about getting people like Charlie Pierce on the site. That all happens sort of easily because people read the site every day and they see what it's become and they want to be involved in it. We never really had trouble hiring or getting freelancers to want to work for us or people to want to pitch features to us. It was all pretty easy because if you read the site every day you knew what it was and you knew what was possible there was deadspin really deadspin before there was consistent coverage of bears on the site though <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest thing is i haven't done a bear post in like two years and i still get emails like all the time <laughs> like hey hey man are you putting the bear post up this friday and i'm like 
I never respond to them because I feel bad. But like the the bit just got stale. I don't know what to tell anyone else. Like it was an extremely stale bit. I didn't even like it anymore. But like people are still upset about that. And I now in hindsight I feel bad. I should have just kept going because people really seem to like it. Well, before it got stale, the bear bit I think was a, an example of just. The places that you can go when you let writers be weird, which I think is mm-hmm. a thing that Deadspin did really well. And it's the place, it's like the number one place I can think of in journalism that had an institutional voice without flattening the individual writers' voices. And I think, not to like gas you guys up, but I think the kind of top level explanation for that is good editing, which is a thing that I think is not appreciated enough about Deadspin, is that whether it's a big investigation whether it's a dumbass post about bears, there's like a consistent level or expectation of quality, maybe not intelligence, maybe like smart stupidity, (laughs) but it's a place where you could go. And it's like that in ESPN. I mean, this is just going to show what a Philistine I am. Those are the only two sites that I would actually, deadspin.com and ESPN.com are the only things that I would ever type into my browser, into the URL bar. And I've like, have still been typing deadspin and I like immediately click away now, which is really sad. But it's just, that's the reason why I got in the habit of just always wanting to see what was on Deadspin, no matter what it was. I think it's actually a few things. I think editing is certainly part of it. I think um, hiring was a big part of it. A good, good number of people who were hired, including Tom, including me, were commenters and longtime readers. You can go down the list of the now former staff and see how many people were regular readers before they got there. They knew the voice of the site before they ever started. Well, Drew McGarry. Absolutely. Drew is the voice of Deadspin in so many ways, and he was a commenter before all else. Kissing Susie Colbert started as five Deadspin commenters. I think the institutional memory of the place played a huge role in it remaining what it was. I think even for people who came in and may not have been everyday readers, were very quickly surrounded by smart, funny people who had been with the site for five years or ten years. And I think as long as we did a good job hiring the right people, I think they would take their cues pretty quickly and fit in pretty quickly. And hiring a Deadspin was always, it was very different for me than hiring anywhere else because so many people who applied were really longtime readers and knew the site's voice so intimately. And I was that way. You know, I was a long, long-time reader before I ever came on. But the couple of hires we made while I was there, you know, you would just, like, get these memos from people who, even if they were not doing it well, they were so clearly going for the deadspin voice. And that's not a thing that happens at most publications. Like, people are bringing all sorts of different things. But at Deadspin, people were like, oh, no, I know Deadspin. I love Deadspin. And I want to sound like Deadspin. The hardest part was keeping people from being like self-parodies of mm-hmm. the Deadspin voice. like, And that's easy enough to iron out pretty quickly. But it's kind of unbelievable in retrospect that that was the biggest problem. They knew the site too well. And I think in addition to like strong editing, um, as you mentioned, it was also just a, an extremely collaborative staff, you know, a lot of the longtime bits or really dumb things that we did that stuck with people, you know, those were sort of a joke that started by someone on the staff and then we all kind of pick up and run with it. And, you know, we're all sort of discussing these ideas out in the open together without even realizing it at the time. And then we get to the end of the joke and we're like, oh, hey, maybe we should 
post this. That would be kind of funny. And so it was just a result of everyone feeling really comfortable bouncing ideas off each other and being stupid uh, with each other. You know, I think that was a big part of it. We had a pretty, you know, flat hierarchy when it came to that stuff. Everyone was sort of on equal footing when we would talk about things, unless someone had like an extremely bad idea that barrier or someone would be like, no, that's bad. We're not doing that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Without overstating it, I mean, I think one of Deadspin's lasting legacies is that it made sports a healthier proposition for people. It made them realize that you could integrate sports with the rest of life. But it also puts sports in its place at the same time. You know, on the one hand, it's sort of inflating the importance of sports as a social force and letting the air out of it simultaneously. Um, And, you know, that's maybe a function also of just digital journalism and the way that sports writing has evolved in the last decade. But I think it's a defining characteristic of the last, you know, couple of decades. When you sort of look at the history of sports, You know, sports writing in the 40s was like, hey, geography. And then in the 50s and 60s, you started quoting athletes. And then there's sort of a social component with the civil rights movement. And then it's a business in the 70s and 80s and free agency and stadiums. And we should talk about this stuff, TV contracts. And then money becomes central to everything having to do with sports in the 90s. And then beyond, it's fan behavior and athlete peccadilloes and red-ass coaches and all of this peripheral stuff that makes us all feel like sports can be important but also ridiculous at the same time. This was a pure reaction to some of the stuffier sports writing there was. From the very beginning, and to give Will Leach all the credit in the world, Deadspin was supposed to be the antidote to the kind of sports writing there was that was, uh, you know the type. Like, they want to post a photo of their bourbon on their way to their (laughs) Bruce Springsteen show. And long articles that did not need to be long, but were clearly written for the purpose of winning awards. You know the type. And Deadspin was there to point out these articles and say... This is stupid. People don't talk about sports this way. This athlete is human, and you are portraying him as some character in your wannabe screenplay. Yeah, there was so much, I mean, I don't know. There was so much serious stuff on Deadspin, whether it was, like, exposing racism or corruption or whatever and writing our share of long investigative features and things like that. But it was just joy at the heart of it. Even when people were pissed about things, it was like... Don't take yourselves too seriously. Don't take any of this too seriously. That was always the attraction of the site for me as a reader was it was like, you know, even the exposés were sort of like, 
you realize how ridiculous this is, right? And I think that's a really special thing. And it's not, there's not a lot of journalism out there doing that. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying that Manti Teo having a fictitious girlfriend wasn't super serious? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was the perfect Deadspin story. That was a story puncturing the lazy myth-making that was common in sports writing and still is to a lesser extent. The Manti Teo story was perfect for some Sports Illustrated writer who thought he was going to win an award for this perfectly maudlin story about a college football player's girlfriend dying the week before a big game. Oh, but he played for her memory. (laughs) And Deadspin showed it didn't exist. It was made up that athletes themselves were buying into these narratives that the legacy publications were more than willing to help blow up. And all it took Deadspin to start poking into that after a tip was just one call to the university where Lene Kikuo had allegedly gone and they said there was no record of such a student existing. One phone call that apparently never came up in all the fact-checking of all the original articles on Mante Teo. And Lene Kakua is now the only editorial staffer at Deadspin. What a what an evolution for, for her, too. I'm not interested in getting you guys to, like, quote-unquote, answer for your crimes, but there was a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in Deadspin, particularly back in the day, that was kind of gross. Drew wrote a piece that was reckoning with some of the stuff that he had written Barry and Tom, like you guys wrote comments that, you know, I know, Barry, you apologized for jokes that you made that you were not proud of. I don't know if any of you guys, Megan, you weren't necessarily there at the time, but then you came in or Barry and Tom. What are your thoughts on kind of the stuff on Deadspin back in the day that maybe you aren't proud of and kind of how the site evolved? Sure. I think it's the evolution of the site that I'm proudest of. It was certainly a sophomore website where, you know, the kind of comments I wrote that were totally unacceptable by standards of today or that day were totally fun at the time because it was anything for a laugh. But as David Roth has said, uh, Deadspin is not actually a site about sports. It's a site about aging and about how we've all kind of grown up through the years, either from the inside or watching the site grow and come to its own awareness of other people out there in the world. Yeah, my opinion about the site and how it's evolved is like, it's all perfectly natural. Like, that's how things work. That's how it's supposed to happen. And I think it's good that the site was one thing 10 years ago and is a different thing now. You know, I think most places, take any magazine, any newspaper, any prestige publication, like, you wouldn't want it to be what it was when it was founded as to what it is now. But nobody is like worries too much about what Rolling Stone was in 1970 compared to what it was in like 2000. Like that's just how things are supposed to go. Publications are supposed to evolve. They're supposed to get better. They're supposed to change. And I think that the fact that that happened at Deadspin is a, a credit to it and the people that worked there and, you know, wanted it to grow and be different rather than just be what it was when it was founded. And that goes back to the importance of the continuity too, I think. Like, it it didn't it changed gradually it changed as a natural evolution it didn't change because like one person came in and said no we have to blow up like what deadspin has has been it was like people growing up people who worked for the website growing up and thus the website they worked for growing up with them i had like you know a somewhat public spat with deadspin in like 2013 maybe because i like pointed out that there weren't any women on staff on my like tumblr i was being a little high-handed about it and deadspin people were being a little annoying about it too <laughs> but that never stopped me from wanting to work there like it, because it was you could see it 
changing over time. You could see it expanding in new and interesting ways while keeping the things that made it the most special. And I think that's like just not a thing you see in a lot of digital media places. Let's talk a little about post-Deadspin. I mean, what's incredible to me is, at its core, this total misreading of the entire ethos of sports coverage as Deadspin has helped it evolve over the last 15 years. That, yeah, you might make some more money with a sort of straight, boring site for doofuses that just aggregates shit or allows unpaid writers to contribute, which Deadspin has helped expose, by the way. Or you can be something that's much broader like Deadspin or Grantland was or The Ringer that demonstrates that, you know, sports isn't just sports. Sports aren't enough. So I don't know. I'm just I'm just sad. And I think this is where <laughs> the emotion part comes in. It's that something that, you know, as you just described, it really did mature in its lifetime into something that was accessible to a lot of people and had a point of view and was often brilliant and often just good and sometimes cringeworthy. And that's okay that it was this sort of panoply of journalism. Should we be more than sad or is there a way to be optimistic that this will be replicated and maybe Deadspin was just part of a cycle? No, be sad. This sucks. <laughs> this fucking sucks. I'm heartbroken. I spent the last 10 years of my life working at this site and I never wanted to leave. I could never picture myself anywhere else. I still can't. Take a week or take some time to be sad for what's gone, but like all the good parts of Deadspin were the writers, and the writers are still around, and they're going to get jobs, and they're going to tweet all their terrible thoughts now that <laughs> we don't have a work chat room to shoot off our half-baked takes into, but Deadspin was just a collection of really talented people who believed certain things, and they're still really talented people. They still believe what they believe. Maybe this will be for the best. Maybe they'll infiltrate every other outlet in media now. I can't think of one newsroom that couldn't use a little more deadspin in it. Yeah, to me, the the really sort of disappointing and, and part that keeps making me sad in the days since everything went down is we should have been the easiest acquisition for any company to make. You know, we were a site with a staff of people that were all pulling in the same direction. You had veterans up and down the masthead Everyone at Deadspin knew what it was supposed to be, knew what they were doing. We all cared really deeply about each other, and we all wanted to be there and nowhere else. If you were trying to imagine a publication that you as a whatever-the-fuck-rich-guy wanted to buy and say, here's a successful thing that I have, like you would imagine Deadspin. You would want that staff of people with that level of experience who put that level of care in their work. And so the, to me, that's the thing that's really disappointing is that they, they wanted to get in a fight with us about the stupidest thing possible. All we were asking them to do was okay, say that we have to stick to sports writer, but just like, please look the other way and just let us do what we want. And we'll keep doing what we've been doing, which is making a site that millions and millions of people read every month and that everyone who works here loves and wants to keep working at. And, you know, it's just sad that that wasn't enough for them for whatever reason. You know, they wanted to be right and they wanted to prove to us that they knew more about the site than we did. So a couple of years ago, Max Reed did a piece for New York Magazine after the destruction of Gawker at the hands of Peter Thiel. And he kind of ran through, like, who is to blame for this? Peter Thiel obviously being 
uh, the number one draft pick there. But he was like, was it Nick Dinn's fault? Was it my fault? Was it A.J. Delario's fault for publishing the Hulk Hogan piece? And, you know, this all started with the lawsuit, like this process kind of started. But I feel like the group that has not gotten enough blame or there hasn't been the conversation around whether to blame them is Univision Mm. selling to this group, Great Hill Partners. And you could say the same about Meredith with Sports Illustrated. It's Mm -hmm. like, if you are a journalistic outfit and it's not working out, like maybe it wasn't working out with Univision, maybe it wasn't working out with uh, Meredith, you should still have the understanding that by selling to a group, a private equity group that does not care about journalism, as we've stipulated, that the outcome journalistically and for the people that work there, there's no scenario in which it's going to be a positive one. So I'm wondering, do you guys think that's fair? I mean, Univision didn't care who they sold to, and they didn't have many options because of how badly they mismanaged it. Where Univision went wrong was saddling all the former Gawker sites with debt from outside sources. So if you ever read about how Univision was losing money on the GMG sites, it was not the GMG sites themselves. They were profitable. They were highly trafficked and making money, but they were so saddled with debt that they did not accrue that the whole proposition became a money loser, and that's why it sold. I do also think at the time, Great Hill actually did seem like the least bad option. I don't say that to defend Univision, which obviously mismanaged this company in a thousand ways, but I remember being in those early meetings with Jim Spanfeller and Paul Maidment, like just before everything turned and they started trying to tell us what we could and couldn't run. And it was sort of like, okay, maybe. They said all the right things. They said all the right things. Jim did not. But when Paul came in, Paul said, my entire job is to protect the newsroom from the influence of the CEO and other people in the C-suite. That's what he said. And I remember coming back from that meeting and putting that in Deadspin's private Slack and saying, guys, I think this might actually be okay. Well, it seemed like this last week you guys even had a little sympathy for Paul Maidman. Like a little bit. (laughs) Well, okay. So I think (laughs) (laughs) sympathy is not the correct word, I don't think. It is absolutely not. My bad. He has a way of speaking and presenting himself where he sort of seems just as like beaten down as you are. And he (laughs) he sort of cuts this figure of like, oh, I'm being, I'm caught in the middle here between everyone's mad at me, like poor me. But like at the end of the day, he's just not doing what he's supposed to be doing. You know, all we were asking for from him was, you know, please just make our case that to the people that need it made. Like we're making this case to you. Your job is to run that up and and make the case for us because you're the you're the boss. You're the one they respect, and he just refused to do it. So yeah, I don't have any sympathy. I don't think I, I do think that you know the pressures that were being put on us probably weren't coming from him personally. They were coming from people above him, but that's not an excuse. Like, yeah, that's why it's so maddening, yeah. right? It's like we saw the starkest possible dichotomy between different types of leadership, right? Like Paul essentially came in, said all the right things, but ultimately had a spine of cottage cheese mm-hmm. and wouldn't stand up to his bosses at all. Barry, on the other hand, like when he became an interim EIC, he said, the only way I'm going to do this is in like an ethical way that makes my staff respect me and got fired for it. And like, I don't think Paul's going to last a tremendously long time at that company either, but he's going to he's going to get pushed out for refusing to do anything, whereas Barry got fired for like, you know, doing the right thing. It is exceedingly frustrating that Tom and I are now jobless because 
we were forced to make the own argument for our existence when our editorial director refused to do so. Yeah. Until you were fired, had the owners actually attempted to enforce any of this sort of stick to sports stuff? I mean, how much of this did you feel was bluster and how much, you know, when did you start getting worried that, you know, this is just not tolerable? That was the other maddening part because, you know, Paul is so, you can't really get a straight answer out of him about anything. So we knew that this sort of like stick to sports thing was out there, but it had never really been laid down as like a law or even communicated that strongly to us. So our, our interpretation of it for months was like, yeah, they're saying this to us, but do they really care? Are they even reading the site that often? Let's just keep doing what we're doing. And I mean, I, you know, I was in interviews to become the next EIC of the site. I was trying to get that job. And like, even in those interviews, it wasn't, a huge thing that was brought up by Paul or Jim or anybody, you know, I, I try, it, I was like, please explain this to me. Like, tell me what's actually going on with this. And they were, they just waffled like they always did. So that's why, you know, when the memo came last Monday, that was like, this is official policy now. That's why we had such a sort of flip it and cheeky reaction to it because, you know, none of it had been, communicated to us in any sort of serious way that like this is actually happening you have to do this that just made everything more frustrating i mean that us. could be my fault too because oh, like yeah. they, you know, they were like extremely trying to make me communicate that to you no i mean um, you told us what they were telling you and you know we were personally i mean all of us the whole staff were in meetings with paul personally yeah. and we could never get a straight answer from him you know we, we were like tell us posts that we've done that would be outlawed under yeah. this new policy. And he couldn't really tell us anything. Because he didn't read it. In the, la in the last meeting we had before we all quit, we asked him that question again. And he was like, well, movie reviews, for example. We posted two movie reviews in the entire year. Like, movie reviews were not a big part of Deadspin for the last three or four years. So it was just, it, it, it just drove us crazy. Because we were like, this site is mostly sports. All we're asking for is the ability to write a stupid post about some dogs that I saw every now and then. <laughs> and they were like, no, that's a fucking red line. And now Barry's fired because you did that. So this might be news to the two of you, certainly news to our, our readers. But as you said, I never heard anything from Jim directly on this stick to sports stuff. It would always filter down. And one particular thing that filtered down, in this case, through the video side of things, was that uh, Jim Spanfeller had been furious when he looked at the site one day and saw a post that was uh, Dan McQuaid interviewing a 28-pound <laughs> chonky cat. So there is an argument to be made that the chonky cat is the post that killed Deadspin. Yeah, that got his attention for whatever reason. That is a scoop for, uh, for listeners <laughs> to hang up and listen. That's, that's great info. I mean, do you think that those guys are happy that everybody left? Like, the idea that, like, oh, you did their bidding, they're not going to have to pay severance, and now they can just put in, like, uh, their, their cronies? Or... Do you think they like had no idea this was going to happen and are now terrified? Well, let me jump in there because I think that any that most managements couldn't conceive of the entire staff walking out. I mean, you guys burned the village down on the way out. I'm not sure to what end yet because, as, as we just talked about, we're all very sad. But I find it impossible to believe that they foresaw this. They thought that you, they could whip you guys into shape and everyone stick around because they need a paycheck. Yeah, I don't think they saw it coming. After Barry got fired that next day, you know, the remaining staff, we'd 
you know, we had several staff meetings together throughout the day. We were deciding what we were going to do. And then at like 3.30, Paul pulled us all into a meeting that I think in his mind he thought was going to be the sort of let's get everybody back on board meeting. Let's whip everyone into shape, you know. Let's uh, let's fix, you know, let's smooth it over and let's get on with our lives. And, you know, in that meeting, he, he you know, he said, this is the time to either, you know, be on board with the vision of the site that's been laid out that cost Barry his job. Um, or if that's not for you, you know, let me know and we can work that out. And, you know, I think he assumed that a few people would maybe come to him and say, you know, this isn't really right for me. Let me try to make a soft exit. I'll put in my two weeks notice, take vacation and, you know, move along. And like five minutes after that meeting ended, we all started sending in our resignations. And I don't think he knew that that was coming at all. He always really underestimated the extent to which the strength of Deadspin was the team aspect of it. And that Mm -hmm. these people all really liked working together and had each other's backs no matter what. Um, He said something to me on my way out the door about how we had just had a meeting that I tried to, like, facilitate between the remaining staff and, and Paul. And then Paul said to me afterward, like, in this tone of true surprise, like, wow, those guys really seem to have your back. And I was sort of like, yeah, no, I mean, I think so. Maybe not because I'm some genius leader, but just because, like, I was trying to, you know, I was helping protect what this thing is. Like, why wouldn't they have had my back on that? He really never understood that this was something more than a paycheck to people. I guess that was really the fundamental thing for me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, I wanted to take a break here to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk to Megan Greenwell, Barry Pachesky, and Tom Lay about their favorite Deadspin stories and ours. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year, and you can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. So Jason Kalkanis suggests that you just start a Squarespace uh, site and, uh, and, <laughs> and get to work, go buy a $10 domain. He did not offer to defend you guys if Peter Thiel files a lawsuit, which I thought was interesting. That would be, that would be useful. Uh, back to the benevolent billionaire idea. I've heard from so many people in the last week just wondering, you know, is somebody going to hire all these guys? They're so great. Is there going to be some some new site where everybody goes like, what do you guys want? I mean, you, you want to still be working together, obviously, I guess, like, what are you thinking about what you want to be doing? Yeah. I never wanted to work anywhere else besides Deadspin. So, you know, I will obviously now, because I need money, attempt to find a job like a normal guy does. But 
you know, I think that we would all love to have an opportunity to start something new together. I don't know what form that would take or, you know, the mechanics of how that would actually happen. But if you're listening to this and you liked Deadspin and you've got, I don't know, like 10 to $15 million, get in touch because we would all, uh, in an instant, I think, you know, down the masthead, we would all do whatever it took to make that happen. Yeah, uh, get in touch with me, not Tom. He yeah, talk to Barry. <laughs> and you like give me like one more week to like not be online before you get in touch. Yeah, I'm yeah. kind of enjoying unplugging for the first time in a decade. Have you stopped checking the Chartbeat app, Barry? <laughs> I lost access to it the second I got fired. Lost my login. I can pull it up and it's frozen to that last day I worked. Sad. It's a bummer because I hear the traffic is really terrible now that Paul is <laughs> blogging. And I would love to see that. I think we could end with uh, the current state of Deadspin a little bit because it makes me, it brings a smile to my face to open Deadspin this morning and I don't want to give them clicks anymore, (laughs) but to see Dolphins dent pursuit of being NFL's worst team, comma, perhaps ever. On, Dent on is a great action verb, Stefan. It really is. <laughs> I, I, I apologize to the current staff of Deadspin then. I think this is really what people want in sports journalism. The top three <laughs> paragraphs of a wire story with a few embedded tweets. Clearly, that's a winning model. Yeah, I think the actual Deadspin headline would have been something along the lines of, you know, Dolphins shit the bed, win first game. Yeah, that's the frustrating thing, too, is if we were still working there, we probably would have a post about the Dolphins that would just be three paragraphs under a headline, and it would just be, you know, the the core of the post would be news that the Dolphins won a game. But, you know, our ability to, like, put that under a funny headline and, like, put a joke in the lead and make the kicker funny, that was the thing that people came to the site to read, not just to find out that the Dolphins won. They wanted to see what Barry's joke about it would be, uh, or if he could, you know, somehow spin it into 700 words uh, where he's just sort of riffing and having a good time with it. And, you know, I think that if management's idea was that you can just put whatever sports content you want under the Deadspin name, and that will get you all the traffic and readers and ad revenue that you could possibly want, they're free to figure that out. Like, if that's the site they want, they can make it. We decided we didn't want to help them do that. So, you know, they can go nuts and they can see they can see if it works or not. Maybe it will. I don't know. But it's not my fucking problem anymore. <laughs> the core of Deadspin, even beyond the investigative stuff, was blogging. The yeah. art of blogging, of writing short, punchy, funny things to entertain bored people at their desks throughout the day. There were a lot of good blogs in the year 2010, 2011, and they've slowly been dropping out over the few years. And... Now that Deadspin's gone, there's one less good blog in the world. The thing I'll miss is just the stuff that I wasn't expecting, just going to the site and seeing whatever weird shit was on there. But just as an editor, somebody who has been editing a sports section for a long time, like the thing that I found so impressive and enjoyable and at times infuriating was the way that you in particular, Barry, could kind of set the agenda of the sports day uh, 
in the morning with <laughs> writing up, picking out what the thing was that happened the previous day that was the most important and interesting, writing about it in a way that was itself smart and interesting and funny. It was like my daily. I don't listen to the daily, <laughs> no offense, but like that was the thing that kind of started off my day. And so thank you for that. And I will miss that. I appreciate that. Except when it was hockey, Barry. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing those hockey blocks into the void to never be seen again. Nobody cares. Megan, what are you going to miss as a Deadspin reader? I've already like lightly wept once on this podcast, so I would prefer not to do it again. But I mean, all of it. Yeah. Like the sense of fun, the sense of joy, the commitment to just like calling out bullshit when it happens. The people who I felt like I got to know just through reading their bylines long before I ever worked there and then got to like work with them and call them my friends. Like it it just all feels so stupid. The fact that this could have ended this way just feels enraging because it doesn't make any sense. You know, the site was having its best traffic year ever. The site had always been profitable. There was just no reason it needed to happen this way. And um, I've been alternating between like, you know, a blind state of rage and like a blind state of depression for like, a, you know, a couple months now. No more so than in the past week. But yeah, I just don't think there's another place to get that. And I think that's a real loss for everybody. I'll just miss just the daily stuff. Like not even the big features or investigations. Those were all clearly hugely important parts of Deadspin and what allowed us to grow and what made us successful. But, you know, to me, the experience of Deadspin and what it was trying to be every day was just a place that people, like you said, you would actually type the URL into the bar and go there on purpose, not just because you saw a headline on Facebook or Twitter that you liked. Like you actually wanted to just scroll down the front page of Deadspin and see what was on there. The one thing that's actually made me feel really good the last few days is that the people who have sort of been doing their fond remembrance of remembrances of Deadspin have been pointing that out as the thing that they really truly enjoyed about it. You know, nobody's sort of gotten out over their skis and been like, you know, democracy will die in darkness now because Deadspin is gone or sports journalism will not survive. People have just been like, yeah, that was a cool site that I liked visiting every day. And I'm bummed that the 20 posts a day that were on there that I enjoyed are now not going to be there. Thanks to all of you for joining the show. Megan Greenwell edited the site for resigning earlier this summer. She's now editor of Wired.com. Megan, thanks. Thank you. And Barry Pachesky and Tom Lay were there at the bitter end. Barry, Tom, it was a pleasure working with you guys when I was able to contribute something to Deadspin. Namely, name of the year. Gotta find yes. a home for name of the year. <laughs> That's such a bummer. It's a huge bummer. <laughs> Who's the other leader in the clubhouse this I year? I think it's gotta be DeColdest Crawford. D-E, lowercase C-O-D-E-S-T. I think it's a lowercase what's, what's his middle name? Middle name is to ever do it. T-O-E-V-A-D-O-I-T. <laughs> He's an LSU commit baby coming to Baton Rouge. Hell yeah. What a way to just really put a capper on the Deadspin era to talk about the coldest Crawford. Just what an appropriately <laughs> idiotic way to end. We wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, we talked to Megan Greenwell, Barry Pacheski, and Tom Lay about their favorite Deadspin stories. Dave McKenna's story, The Writer Who Was Too Strong to Live, which was about a sports writing prodigy 
who had drunk herself to death. The humanity in that story, it's truly one of the best features of any genre that I've ever read. The favorite post that I always think of is the headline was, does Tony Dungy believe that Michael Vick is being haunted by dog ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.